I'm Austin. I'm Mike. We are the test drivers. And we put tech through its paces. And what better way to put the CES 2021 tech we have through its paces than by staying at home and spending the entire week on Zoom calls. Have you recovered yet? actually wasn't so bad i feel like every year at ces you get the ces plague you're out it's dry you're not getting enough sleep i got plenty of sleep i commuted from my office three feet away from my bedroom and it was great i had no problems that's good actually we're going to talk about some of the news from ces a little bit later on in the episode uh but i'm pleased that it went it went well for you it definitely is even as a as a observer of ces it felt way calmer because it was like there was loads of headlines that you read on websites and stuff, but there were no like show floor CES YouTube videos. Mm. Yeah. Like I know it's like the YouTube like creators that I follow way less content around CES this year than previous years. Yeah. CES is like an interesting show because I think oftentimes what I like most are the things that are sort of, you know, more concepty, right? Where you can't necessarily get your hands on. It's like, you know, a a look at future technology. And while we certainly saw a fair few announcements around concepts, obviously without being able to touch and feel them and try them, there's not really anything to make a video on. I mean, sure, you can write up an article or something, but it's, you know, a couple of images from Razor's press site or whatever. It was certainly different. Yeah. I kind of miss it. I mean, it would have been my 10th year in a row, and I was really looking forward to that, like, hey, hey. Yeah, but uh, man, next year, I'm sure it'll be fine. Probably, maybe, who knows? Yeah, you see, this, these are the kinds of conferences I'm not sure. Because it almost feels like something like CES, uh, same as like E3, were kind of already on their last legs anyway. Yeah. Um, that I I could imagine a, world, a post-COVID world where these big trade shows, they might not come back. I could yeah, imagine Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I do think there's a lot of value to a show like CES, kind of like what we were talking about last time. And that, like, there's something to be said for walking a show floor and mm-hmm. being sort of surprised or, you know, caught by some random piece of tech you never really would have looked twice at, especially the size of CES with the thousands and thousands of exhibitors. I mean, it, there's something to that. But I, yeah, I mean, staying at home and being on Zoom calls actually was not the worst because I got to skip a lot of the things I normally would have gotten roped into of just yep. like, ah, but, you know, it's it's nice to be able to go hang out with people and, and see stuff in person. But I'll agree. I think when you talk about a global trade show, uh, 150,000 people coming from all corners of the world to go hang out in a tiny cramped or not tiny, but certainly cramped conference room in dry Las Vegas for a week is not exactly the most conducive to health in the best of times yeah see i could imagine something on that scale not even being in ready for 2022 like safely and everyone's comfortable with it and i feel like two years off of something like ces i don't know what level it will come back in because the thing about this this kind of event is it only works if all of the big exhibitors want to take part and at a certain point, mm-hmm. these companies are like, "Do we even need this trade show?" <laughs> right? Like, because this, this is this yeah. is what has happened to CES and E three over time, anyway. Right? Like, the bigger companies, are like, why are we doing this on your schedule? Yeah, yeah, and obviously, like E three, I think is a great example of that. That a lot of like, so I think what is it, Nintendo? Actually, who's even left at E three at this point? Because I think PlayStation dipped. Yep. And then I think then Microsoft Xbox did it had at like the same own... time, but they had their own event. Yep. 
Yeah, which was hilarious. Yeah, so like, <laughs> E three, yeah, but it's not that different. Like, because I remember when I first was going to CES, you had like at the time all the big companies like BlackBerry, you had like Motorola, you had Microsoft with this huge booth. Like, you had all of these huge companies. And it wasn't just like, oh, here's some weird concepts and stuff. It's like, oh, here's this ridiculous new phone that turns into a tablet and yep. it's 2011 and everyone's going to love it. Like, there were real meaty things to talk about, right? And uh, over the last few years, as these spaces have gotten more and more exorbitantly expensive, and like you said, there's sort of the barrier to entry has been lowered where if you're Microsoft, why would you announce it at CES where there's going to be 100 other announcements on the same day bearing the information, right? It makes a lot more sense to spread things out. That, I think, is where this show's lost some utility, but I still very much hope it comes back in maybe not quite as large a form as it was right. before, right. but the ability to go and hang out with people and sort of catch up, and specifically the ability to be able to walk the show floor and just see some of the randomness that... I, I, I think that's something that I'm going to really miss if CES doesn't come back in full force, but there were certainly some things to talk about this year. Before we get to those, uh, my PC case arrived. Ooh, the O11 Mini? Yeah. Oh, okay. So uh, what color did you get it in? White. White, right. It's funny. I was actually, so we're, we're building a couple of systems uh, using the O11 right now. Oh. And I just found uh, this weekend, the standard O11. Right. Uh, although I think we actually may, might be using the mini based on how you like it. But I found a standard O11 in yellow, like Pikachu <laughs> yellow. And I was like, yo, I need to do something with that because it looks so good. <laughs> That's <But> nice. <laughs> Yeah, but how, so have you actually opened up the O11 Mini, or are you just keeping, like, do you have, like, a, a, a closet full of PC unopened components right now? It's, well, I, I just have a stack of things. You know, I have, like, yep. my PC case, my graphics card, and my processor. That's what I have. Because we're back okay. in, like, full lockdown here in London, um, but my plan is for this, stu- this to be at my studio. So I'm not, mm-hmm. I don't think I'm going to build it at home. I don't know. It, maybe I'll get antsy, but I still need a lot more parts, and yeah i think the main one that i'm struggling with at the moment is what motherboard to get because i want integrated wi-fi for example which i know maybe makes me weird uh when it comes what i found out like i would have just naturally assumed that every computer comes with integrated wi-fi but that's not the case and right you still have to make a choice depending on the motherboard you want or you end up with an antenna sticking out the back which i'm not super into yeah, well, even the the boards that do have Wi-Fi, they typically have uh, the little screw-type antennas where you're still supposed to put, like, some little fin somewhere. Right, okay. But the good thing is it has, like, a, I don't know, like a two-foot-long sort of, like, wire to it. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes you can kind of tuck it out of the way and it's fine. Mm-hmm. And uh, if I'm being real, I've certainly used Wi-Fi without that antenna, and it still kind of works. It's yeah. not the worst thing in the world. But, yeah, the, to find Wi-Fi is actually not the most straightforward thing if you want it integrated yep. because while most small, like, ITX boards do have Wi-Fi built in, beyond that, you usually have to go for the very high-end ATX, like, full X570 boards that have Wi-Fi because it's usually it's not a feature that, like you said, a ton of people use. And it's certainly not integrated into all boards, especially because you can always buy, like, a USB dongle or whatever it is to add Wi-Fi after the fact. So it's almost like... This is so weird to me. Like, the thought of, like, I will take up a USB port for one of the most fundamental things that the computer should do, which is connect to the internet. It's so strange yeah. to me, Austin. Like, maybe this well, is just, like, my Mac showing, but, like, it's just it just seems so weird that, like, they're not... All- 
at all built to have integrated Wi-Fi. Like that's just a consideration of every case and motherboard. I it's think very weird. the majority of people just plug in. I think that's still yeah. like kind of the the gamer mentality. Even though in a lot of cases, Wi-Fi is now actually technically faster than gigabit Ethernet. Um, there's now like faster like 2.5 gig Ethernet that you're finding on some boards and whatnot. But I think just the idea that, you know, lower latency, get rid of the mm-hmm. Wi-Fi side of things. Don't worry about any kind of like drop signal, especially when you're gaming. I think like there's certainly advantages to being tethered. But specifically for someone like you who are building a smaller form factor system that, who knows, you might take back and forth to work or to home if you need to. If, say, oh, I don't know, some circumstance happens where you need to come home for a little while, (laughs) having Wi-Fi is kind of helpful. Yeah. So that's where I am. Uh, Also, the other thing which I'm struggling with a little bit is just working out my cooling. Mm. I'm not liquid cooling. Okay. I want to do air. Okay, so you're you're not gonna do an AIO. You're not gonna do anything. You want straight, just a straight air cooler. AIO. This is a thing I hear people talk about, but yes, I'm not a hundred percent. No, no water cooling. I want no liquid okay. inside my computer. Okay, <laughs> okay. Well, when you put it like that. Sounds pretty reasonable. So usually, uh, it just breaks down to water cooling can be either like you do a custom loop where you mm-hmm. build it yourself, or you can use an AIO and all in one, which essentially is just mm. has. The pump and the reservoir all kind of built in, so you just kind of bolt that on to the the CPU, and then it has a couple of tubes running to a radiator. It could be of various different sizes, and it always pretty much comes with the fans. You know, you mount it in the top or the side of your case or something. Okay, that's kind of like the easy way of doing it. But the thing is, it actually doesn't necessarily always make sense. Like it kind of looks cool, but there are a lot of air coolers that, while to be fair, once you get to the high end of like say. If you're using like a Core i9, which is very power hungry and whatnot, you got to use a big, beefy air cooler. But for something like your Ryzen 9, unless you plan on overclocking it severely, and I wouldn't recommend it because you're not even going to get that much more performance, you can get pretty decent air coolers that while are certainly going to be big and certainly going to be heavy just because, you know, the laws of physics will certainly do the job and, of course, have a lot fewer moving components Namely, a fan, which if it breaks, you just swap it out, compared to an AAO, which, like you said, has liquid, has a pump, has multiple fans, has a radiator, a lot more moving pieces. And AIOs do not last forever, right? I think a lot of people just kind of put it in and forget about it. But you're supposed to do, I mean, obviously, they've gotten better over the years, but you're supposed to kind of keep in mind that, like, things can degrade, especially as they're kind of constantly heat cycling over time. So I don't think you're crazy to go with air cooling. I, for my system, I built it with an AIO and I've already taken my system apart. I'm already ready to rebuild it because I was not happy with a couple of the things. Namely, I think I want to switch to an O11 Mini because that thing looks sick. Yeah, I'm excited. But so that's where I am. I need to think about what board, what uh, logic, not logic board motherboard i need oh my god i think you got a macbook in your back pocket right now i'm just gonna slip a mac mini inside and and then nobody will ever know and i'll just i'll just stick some rgb on it and people will think it looks cool uh yeah so and then outside of that like ram and what like i'm good with all of that like that's easy for me to work out but the the two things that i'm sticking on right now is which uh motherboard do i want and then which uh cooling options do i want to look at Nice. Well, hopefully we have an update when you actually decide on some of those things. Because I know, especially with the O11 Mini, 
you have a lot of flexibility in the way that you configure the inside because you can go all the way up from a mini ITX motherboard mm. up to ATX, but then that sort of changes mounting points. But because you're not water cooling, you don't need those radiators. You have a little bit more room to play with how you want to do it. Hmm. Ultimately, Austin, I'm looking for you to just tell me what to buy. You know that, right? <laughs> I'm like, okay, 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 okay. We'll you don't you have up. to tell the me now. The only thing you need, but <laughs> the only other thing you'll need to keep in mind, you need with that case a small form factor power supply. Yeah, uh, known as an SFX supply. The those are fine. They're great. They're kind of hard to come by though. Okay. Um, there's just not a huge selection of them, and they're typically more expensive just because they're smaller. So that would be one thing that if you're going to put an order in relatively soon. Try to track one of those down because I'm using one for a build coming up soon. And the two options were wait two months for it to arrive or pay $100 over retail to get it sooner. So maybe just something to think about. That might be something you want to put an order in sooner than later for. Okay. I'll look at that. So, Mike. I saw a tweet from you. (laughs) And it had to go. I put it immediately in our show notes. Uh, Because, look, we've we've Mm -hmm. long chronicled your uh, journey into... Acquire, getting, trying to catch them all <laughs> yep. and uh yep. it seems like you fell for a little trick from wish uh i i don't think i fell for a trick i think i was investigating the authenticity of a particular item from our friends at, at wish uh okay okay so of course we have a series called wish Street tech where it's mystery tech but i buy dumb things off of wish inevitably get scammed or i'm amazed at how great things are but i'm almost always scammed so for an upcoming episode of wish tech which should it's actually probably still a couple weeks out from when the show goes live but uh i purchased a box a booster box of evolutions xy evolutions pokemon cards so these if you're not familiar are essentially a reprint of the original set it's not exactly the same the fonts are different and whatnot but like the cards are very similar. The artwork is the same. These came out back in 2016, sort of actually at the peak of like Pokemon Go hype, and they were wildly popular. Now, they're not rare cards, right? I mean, they've made tons and tons of these cards. They've kept them pretty much constantly printing ever since 2016, which is pretty much unheard of for Pokemon cards. Mm-hmm. But even that being said, there are a lot of cards that are worth a lot of money, and to buy a sealed booster box of evolutions can cost you $500. $600, like they're still very, very valuable. So when I'm on Wish and I see a box for, I think, 25 bucks, I, I can't resist. I, I got to find out, right? I mean, come on. They're, they're the Pokemon cards on Wish. And um, they are the fakest thing I have ever That's so seen. bad, man. That's so bad. <laughs> like, look, I didn't expect. So the thing is on Wish, if you ever shopped on Wish, it's kind of hard to know what you're getting because I saw like a stock photo of an evolutions box, but I'm like, okay, these could either be one of two things fake, which there are certainly fake Pokemon cards and there always have been, but they're actually not like wildly popular or the thing that I actually thought I was going to get was someone just used a random photo of the box because clickbait is a thing on wish. Instead, I was just going to get like a box of like common energy cards or just kind of more junk cards. And that would be what I would get. So imagine my surprise when I opened the box and there's a sealed, fairly authentic-looking booster box of evolutions, right? So uh, this thing has, like, the Pokemon seal on the, the plastic wrap around it. The print quality looks slightly suspect, but underneath the plastic, it's kind of hard to tell. You look inside, and you see, you know, a stack of packs. So I'm like, uh, okay, this is not terrible. But as soon as you open it up, you realize that the cards are 
they're they're special. They're special. Uh, so in fact, I will um, I'll kind of show you right here. I have one of the packs. It looks fairly authentic. We'll have some photos in the show notes. But I'm gonna open up this fake pack of cards right now. I and, wonder uh, if let's if see what we pull. Pokemon card pack opening is effective on an audio podcast i guess we're gonna find out right like it seems to have done great numbers for youtube let's see if it does the same for for the show all right so we have a reverse hollow blastoise a charmeleon a sandshrew a blastoise volcanian Starmie, Professor Zoken, another star. Wait, no, what? A Blastoise and a Squirtle. Okay, so man, that was an incredible might, pull. Did you get three Blastoise in that pack? I got two and a half. Two I got a, a Blastoise oh, Spirit wow. Link. So <laughs> you just made sixty thousand dollars. <laughs> so these cards are weird because they're a mix of like some of them look relatively authentic, but like all the text is like clearly been typed in, so like they look a little off. The cards don't feel right, so they have this kind of like they're very thin. Um, you can kind of bend them and stuff. Some of them look okay, like so, especially like some of like the reverse and the the hollows. Actually, like the foil is not terrible, but all of the cards I feel like are like five percent too small, and the texture isn't quite right. And then some of the cards, so like I'll I'll show you like so. There's a photo. There's one of the Squirtle card I pulled. The art on the Squirtle, I swear, is just a screenshot from Pokemon Stadium on the N64. Like, it's it's very oh bizarre, God. some of the choices they made. So, um, yeah, I guess don't buy Pokemon cards on Wish unless you want to have a ton of fun buying fake stuff because it was like 25 bucks. I was like, you know what? I mean, what? It, what could it hurt? Nothing. Nothing is the answer besides copyright law. I actually think it's way better to get blatantly fake cards than to think you've gotten a great deal on <laughs> real cards, right? Like, if they're going to be <sighs> fake, you want to really know they're fake. Because if you pulled, like, a Charizard from one of those packs mm-hmm. and it looked legit, mm-hmm. like, you'd be very upset to find out that it it's, like, I don't know, a fake one. Yeah, so, and that's the thing, like, these cards are, I would say passable fakes especially if you're not like sort of really into pokemon cards when you look at the box again i mean it's got like the plastic wrap with a little pokeball seal on it right which is obviously not the hardest thing to fake in the world but i mean it looks pretty legit on the outside there's certainly some towels but if you're not really into pokemon you're not going to notice when you open up and you grab the packs again the pack artwork is similar but actually not the same it's slightly different color actually it's some of the packs are an entirely different art, but this got that same kind of logo. You look in the back, it's got like a barcode, the copyright. Like, I mean, it's fairly authentic looking. And when you open up the cards, especially if you haven't played Pokemon cards in a while, uh, you might be a little suspicious when you pull four, three Blastoise from one pack. Um, and some of the cards printing quality is actually kind of bad, but I, it's not like the most egregious thing. The worst thing I pulled was a Blastoise that was called Caterpie, which... That was a little bit of a giveaway, but I I don't know. I mean, it's fun. It's cool. But apparently, this is actually a fairly well-known set because some cards are very, very authentic. But those are like, you know, hand forgeries, right, of like really expensive cards that people try to pass off and get graded and stuff. This is much more so a, you know, some Chinese company came in and printed, you know, 10,000 of these boxes and sold them for like 10 bucks each because, you know, why not, right? So, I mean, they're absolutely completely and totally fake cards but um 
look, I had to do it for science, right? I had to find out what Wish was going to give me. And fun fact, since I made the video, since I ordered it, uh, they've actually taken this listing down. So clearly someone else at Wish has noticed that these were, in fact, not authentic cards. So good job to Wish for taking them down. But uh, I have like 30 more packs that I just like randomly give to people. Like, hey, check out these fake Pokemon cards. And everyone always has a great time. You know how you'll know that the Pokemon card bubble has gotten too big? Is if like the fake cards start to get a value attributed to them. (laughs) Wait, wait, Mike, do I need to collect these fake cards? Is this going to be worth something someday? Maybe. Oh, I'm going to stop handing these out to random people on the street. (laughs) What if these actually turn out that they're not fake? They're actually from the, like the company, but they reject cards. Now the value is going up. I will say if these are reject cards, they're very, rejecty <laughs> yeah it turns out that they were from a test print from a new factory who couldn't get them right if that was uh, the case man. can you imagine like now they will be worth like tens of thousands of dollars those cards like immediately and i've just been like unboxing them and like ripping them in half to yep. see like how the card stock is and stuff oh, like, we get an die. email from a listener who's like oh my god have you not heard about the cat to be blastoise card austin's <laughs> a millionaire <laughs> Well, uh, this will be my last episode of the podcast. I'm going to go and <laughs> go chill in Hawaii go with my Caterpie Blastoise. <laughs> this episode of The Test Drivers is brought to you by FitBot, the fitness app that provides a personalized exercise plan, a fitness plan that actually fits you. When it comes to fitness, FitBot believes that everyone can be better. Whether you're working out three days a week or twice a day, FitBot's algorithm uses data and analytics to help you based on your previous workout so that your next workout is scientifically proven to be better than the last. FitBot has been fine-tuned by certified professional trainers to bring the best practices of strength training to you. Your workout program is tailored exactly to your needs, making it perfectly suited to your unique body experience, environment, and goals. It can be hard to know exactly how much you should be doing whilst exercising, so FitBod figures that out for you so you don't have to worry about under or overtraining. And FitBod will also mix up your muscle groups, exercises, sets, reps, and weight over time to keep you on top form. If you're working out at home right now, FitBot has a bunch of bodyweight-only workouts. These are great indoors or outdoors, but if you have access to a gym, they have tons of great workout options for you there too. No matter how much equipment you have or what you have access to, they're going to have everything that you need so you don't need to spend hours researching the best exercises and strategies for you. Uh, FitBot has tons of really great videos along with the exercises so they can show you exactly what you're going to need to do. And it's available uh, on iOS and Android. So you can get it whatever uh, smartphone platform you have. I really love that they have an Apple Watch app. So when I'm doing the exercises, I don't need to keep checking my phone. My, my watch can just tell me what the next exercise is and I can log how many reps I've done and stuff like that. It's super great. FitBot is available on iOS and Android, and you can get started right now by going to fitbod.me slash testdrivers, and you'll get 25% off your membership. That's fitbod, F-I-T-B-O-D dot me slash testdrivers to try out FitBod for free and get 25% off your FitBod membership. Our thanks to FitBod for their support of Test Drivers and Relay FM. All right, we spoke about it. We knew it was coming, and it's been all been announced. The Samsung S21. Uh, when are these going to be available to, to actually in people's hands? I believe it's the 29th. Okay. Check at that this before month. I say that for sure. 
and they did uh, change the prices, uh, which yeah, was something that we were considering and talking about. And I would say Samsung have done a really good job here with the pricing. And yes, I think it's helped to excuse some of the things that we were concerned about. And we'll get into those in a little bit. So the S21, yes. the standard S21, in my opinion, the best looking of all of the phones uh, starts at $799. The S21 Plus is at $999 and the Ultra at $1199. So everything has come down in price a bit. Um, and they're, I think, doing a better job of making themselves much more price comparative. Um, I think lots of people bring up the iPhone a lot here, and that's definitely true. It is uh, price comparative with the iPhone now, kind of like if you're just buying it straight off, what you can get it from without tradings and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's also comparative with the Android market now because yes, we spent a lot of time talking about companies like OnePlus. OnePlus keep bumping up in their capability and their prices. Um, and I think that this kind of puts them instead with everyone that they're competing with. Yeah. And I think the S20, I think now that we look back, seemed like Samsung reaching too far, right? Because yeah. Over time, everyone had kind of creeping up the prices. But the S20, I mean, the base S20 started at $1,000, right? That so was silly. the cheapest S20. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy, crazy, right? I think Samsung has realized that that was too much, thankfully, right? Because I know when we were recording last episode, we were like, eh, if it's going to be the same, this sounds, seems weird. But thankfully, it seems like they've come to their senses. They've dropped the prices on the entire S21 line by about $200 or so. And while, yes, there are some small cutbacks on, like, the amount of RAM and the micro SD card and some things like the plastic back, but in exchange, I think you're getting an overall much more competitive phone, and you're also getting something which seems a lot more well-rounded. Because last year, and, and one of the problems traditionally with most Samsung phones, specific, but specifically with the S20 line, is that the phones are great when they first come out, right? But the thing is, you always know that they're going to go on sale a few months later, right? Like almost without fail, right? Like when the Note 20 came out last year, it came out at $1,000 with like a 1080p display, 60 hertz, plastic back. I mean, they had a lot of sort of deficiencies. But everyone's like, oh, it's fine though, because you know it's going to be $700 in two months. And sure enough, it dropped in price, right? So that sort of idea for the S21 was great. And the thing is, you know, you buy it in April, it's still a modern flagship that's going to have the, the latest specs before most other companies have even upgraded. But this time around, they're sort of coming out swinging right out of the gate. So not to sound like a Samsung shell, but the other day I was, I was checking out a pre-order, you know, as you do. And they've got for essentially, so I was looking at the standard S21, right? If you want to buy it from Samsung, they have a $100 pre-order credit which you can put toward like the, the new buds or whatever. So basically for $880, I could get the S21, I could get the headphones, the $200 headphones, and a Galaxy Tag plus like YouTube Premium and stuff. All for like 880 bucks, way less than just the base S20 was last year. So I think they're being aggressive on multiple fronts to not only try to get the pre-orders, but also just delivering phones that I would say seem to, I don't want to say like are completely worth it, but are way more competitive than they were last year. So here's the question then. I wonder if it might be a bad assumption to to just naturally assume 
that they will drop the price of these. Mm-hmm. Because they might I not agree. now. I mean, there they will might. be carrier incentives. Yes, there will be some. I don't think we're going to see the kind of stuff where, like, you know, you look at $1,000 and think, oh, well, that's going to be $700 in three months. I think maybe three or four months from now, it might go down to $700 instead of $800 or something. I don't think the S21 is going to drop so as aggressively. Bucks. They just don't have the room for it. Like, that's not going to exactly. happen. That's, that's not going to yep. happen. That seems too aggressive. Um, more aggressive than they can probably afford to do. So, But that's good, though. It's good because, like, yes. I don't like the idea of being punished for being an early adopter. Exactly. I don't want to go it's out bad. there, pay full price for a phone, knowing that's immediately going to get cut. Because for me, that means, oh, I'm just going to wait, yep. right? So with the idea that, I mean, of course, we don't know. They could still do some price cuts. I'm sure they will do some. But I'm okay if I buy the phone in January and in May they cut it by $100. Like, okay, whatever. You know, like, that's that's fine. What I don't want to see is spending $1,000 today and a month and a half, two months from now, someone buys it for 700 bucks and gets a pre- free pair of like headphones in the box. That's the part where I'm like, eh. So I think that they're making a smart move across the board here. The S21 Plus seems a little bit lost again, though. <sighs> okay. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's the S21, the base model, the smaller yep. one, or the Ultra. Because you don't get that much for going up to the Plus. So you go from a plastic back to a glass back on the plus you get a larger battery and a larger screen you get the ability for it to function as a car key with their sort of what what do they call their chip it's not it's it's like similar to the ultra wideband chip in the iphone i think they have some marketing term for it but there aren't a lot of advantages and you still get like a 1080p display you still get the same spec the same ram everything else i think it's either you go for the the baby s21 or you go for the full uh, ultra there just doesn't seem to be a lot of middle ground this time. That's probably my only real criticism of the lineup in that $200 more for a slightly larger screen really doesn't seem worth it for anyone. Yeah, I, I think I'm struggling still to reconcile Samsung's overall lineup in mm-hmm. the this. I know that they have an absolutely behemoth lineup, but in their kind of flagship uh areas like the ultras and and i'm sure we're gonna have the same thing again uh because it doesn't look like i mean i was i was wondering if the note will go away i think not yet i still think it will um but i don't i think not not this year because they integrated the s pen but not as fully as i thought that they might you know um (laughs) it very very much is like hey this works but you know yeah yeah so i mean there's certainly some negatives here right i mean so well actually you know what? i'll say actually some side grades right so the s21 and the s20 plus have flat screens as opposed to the curves i actually prefer a flat screen um to be fair on the ultra it is curved but it's like slightly less curved so it's just a little bit on the side mm-hmm. but there are problems when you go for a curved display of like things like screen protectors become much more difficult to get yeah. your hands on and sort of any kind of high quality capacity things like a plastic back i don't care the Samsung plastic backs actually feel pretty premium and it's less shatter resistant, I guess, even though to be fair, they are using on the plus and the ultra, uh, was it uh gorilla glass Victus, right? Which is like supposedly the best. I've actually haven't seen a lot of like drop tests and whatnot of it. I assume it's better, but it's on the front and the back of those phones. Whereas on the standard S 21, it's just on the front, but guess what? I don't care. Cause it's plastic on the back. So it's not really shouldn't shatter. There are some things that are a little bit odd, like dropping the micro SD and less RAM, blah, blah, blah. But like, mm-hmm. None of the things that they've cut 
at the $800 price point for the S21 offend me, right? It's all like, okay, that's fine. That's fine. I'll give that up. I'll give that up. Because in return, we get things like the full dynamic refresh rate of the displays. We have the upgraded specs. And personally, I agree. I think the S21 is the best looking because it's got the same kind of style camera bump as the Plus. But in proportion to the phone, I think it just looks better, especially with that, what is it, phantom violet color that they've got. It looks really nice. I think that they've done... They've done bad on the S21 Ultra with the colors. I know people are super mm-hmm. into the black one, right? Like, I get it. Like, if you're, yeah. if you're into the black, if you want a black phone, they got the black phone. <laughs> but they don't have any of the really cool colors. Mm-hmm. They have yep. a brown, which you can buy directly <laughs> from Samsung, if that's your thing. Brown. Phantom Brown. <laughs> Uh, but you <laughs> can only get black and silver from everybody else, and they have like a, another gray, a navy, and a brown. Oh my god, that you can get, and it has like a carbon fiber looking thing. But like the mm. great colors is like the the lilac ones and the pink ones, and yeah. they don't have those options. And I think that that's I think that's weird because that that I think the gold uh, with the colors like looks super good, but they have they've they've done they, I think that they've done they've done bad on the on the on the ultra. That, to be honest yeah i mean look i i think ultimately the aesthetics of a phone are pretty low priority when the vast majority of people throw a scanner case on it that it doesn't actually matter that much but i will agree um phantom brown not brown, a fan man. of that in any way uh, <laughs> i mean <laughs> it's so I guess bad it's... too <laughs> have you seen it you've got to go on yeah. the website and take a look at this if you haven't seen it it's <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> I really don't get it. Wait, so Phantom Brown. I've... It's a Samsung.com exclusive colorway. Oh, oh, I did not see this. I was looking at the, what is it, the the titanium or whatever. Mm-hmm. That, uh, okay, so that's like the silvery gray. Oh, like that's actually straight like brown brown. It's just brown. <laughs> oh. It's like, you're right, Samsung.com exclusive. Like a red one for the S21 Plus and like a gold one. They have like extra colors mm-hmm. on the website for the S21 Plus and the Ultra. And for some reason, they chose brown. Ah, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's expensive. It's high end, right? I mean, like brown, like leather bags that cost $20,000. Like it's, that's just, it's a flagship. Um, if they made, <clears throat> if they put a leather on the back of an Austin, that's one thing. Like with those like Tom Brown ones, but that's just a, yeah. that's, that's just a literal brown <laughs> phone. I don't, it's not for me. That is not for me. <laughs> That's okay. Whatever. More colors. We can never complain about more options. Yep. I'm sure the phone is lovely and great to hold and whatnot. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Just Phantom Brown. Not sure how that got through the marketing department. I don't, I don't know think anyone has Phantom. ever wanted. What's Phantom mm. about it? I don't know what's Phantom about it. Is that, it like Phantom think... of the Opera? Because it's got like the half mask <laughs> thing going on. Is that what they're doing here? <laughs> Uh, well, okay, okay. There are some good things, though. There are certainly some good things. So the Ultra, like we had talked about last time, I feel like we don't have to rehash all the, the specs. But no. essentially all the specs were fairly well leaked ahead of time. The 1080p displays that are dynamic up to 120 hertz on S21 and the Plus. And you do get the full 1440p, which thankfully you can do the full resolution and the full frame rate as far as I yeah, know. Cool. I still do actually not have the, the Ultra in my hand yet. But from what I know, you can actually do the full beans if you want to do it on the Ultra. Slightly curved display. Like we've talked about, there's no charger in the box. But 
things like having at least some additional features on the Ultra, I do think, help to justify the price premium. Because like we were talking about before, the S Pen is a very interesting feature. This is the first time that they brought it out to some of their S line of phones, even though it's not the most, um, shall we say, practical to carry or use their giant case for. Yeah, I, I think it's just a matter of time until an S Pen is actually integrated into an Ultra phone and like it just becomes the new Note. Like I, I really do think that it makes mm-hmm. sense in the long run to to consolidate a little bit. Like Samsung, I think, need to consolidate. Because, you know, yeah. the, the, how many concurrent lines do they want to run on the top end? I, I think at a certain point it becomes too much. Um, it's interesting that they have two different S Pens that you can buy for the Ultra uh, one of them is basically just a stylus, and then the other one has like the Bluetooth uh, enhanced effects of like hovering and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. it's it's interesting that they have those options available, but you do need to have a you know have a case or just have it loose with you. Um, but it's a step. I think that you know uh, the 1080p displays and the S21 and S21 Plus. It's it is a downside. Um, I still think that. Even with a price decrease, you know, it's a price decrease back to where we were a couple of years ago. Yes. Yes. So I understand <sighs> the idea of like, okay, they've cut some stuff back and they've cut the price, but we need to mm-hmm. remember that prices have just been steadily increasing over the last couple of years, like outward yeah. of inflation. So, yeah, you know, we're $800 for a phone, which is the like, that's how much I could galaxy s9 would have cost or whatever so you know like mm-hmm. in that region so you know fine but the, yeah. the, the the diamond refresh rate stuff like that was a must and i'm pleased that they've mm-hmm. done that i think that that's that's something that they should have done um and you know i understand that like you've got like a trade-off right because they were doing 10 you had to do 1080 to get uh the high refresh rate anyway so if they're going to force you to 1080, they should make the refresh rate dynamic and enabled for everybody, and they've done that. So, you know, yes, th- there's there's a everything weighted up. They've made some some okay choices here, some good choices. But it's it, I think context around the price is really important. Um, and yeah. this is just something that all firm manufacturers have been doing over the last few years. It's just they just keep putting the prices up. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's why. <sighs> Uh, the, the S line is usually one of the safer bets, I think, long term, right? I, I think the software support is usually a little bit slow. I mean, I think I'm still looking for an upgrade on my Z Flip for that sweet One UI 2.5, 2.2. They're three, up to three now. They're, calling it. they're up to three now. What, whatever. I'm waiting for Android 11, whatever they right. want to call it, right? So there's certainly some issues that I think companies like OnePlus have been sort of a little bit more timely with the software updates, but this has always been a Samsung thing. I look at the S21 line this year, specifically the base model and the Ultra, but even I think almost more so the base model. And it feels like probably one of the more well-rounded Android phones of 2021, which is um, maybe so a little to bit call of a... Austin with 19 yeah. days into the year. <laughs> <laughs> it's the first yeah. Android phone of 2021. It It is. This is a true statement. But the thing is, like, it's so well-rounded in so many ways that, yes, I wish that it did have a 1440p display, but I wish that more so on principle than anything. It just, I don't like the idea of regressing. It's one thing to remove a micro SD card slot or a headphone jack because you need more space or whatever. But that's just a cheaper screen that they're using. 
but at least it is a very, very usable screen. And there's nothing wrong with 1080p beyond the fact that I used to be able to have more, right? That's the only real issue that I have. And ultimately that's not any kind of deal breaker. But you look at the spec, you look at the design, you look at the screens, you look at the, the build, pretty much all aspects of this phone, especially with the cameras, which are of course solid Samsung cameras like we've had for several years now. I think the S21, especially if it gets even a minor price cut at some point throughout the year, is going to be a very compelling deal. I think it sort of matches up pretty favorably with the iPhone. Obviously, the iPhone is good this year, and the Mini is the greatest phone of all time. <clears throat> but um, I think the S21, they've done a good job of positioning it far better than they have the last year, almost even like the last couple of years, because even the S10, I think, wasn't quite as sort of focused on that price-to-performance ratio. Whereas the S21, I think they've done some some good stuff. So I'm I'm very excited. Obviously, maybe it won't be the greatest Android phone for the entirety of 2021, but I feel pretty it's confident in calling like it's it's an easy pickup if this is the kind of phone that you're looking for, right? Yeah. If you know if you're on the Samsung train, if you're looking for an Android flagship, or even if you want to sort of dip your toes away from the Apple pool into the Samsung River. Eh. I should have thought that. Now that you threw, the S21 mm-hmm. seems like a very solid move. I think the S21 and the S21 Ultra, they're both really good versions of what they're supposed to be. Yep. Because the Ultra has got just really mad stuff going on. You know, like four cameras on the back, and I think it's a 40 megapixel yeah. selfie camera. Like, yeah, on its own, that kind of stuff that they're doing there, like it, it justifies the madness of a phone of that size. And you know, you've got a fourteen forty p display that's between ten and one twenty hertz. Like, I actually think that that is a, this. It's last year I was like, you know, I thought that the Ultra was an interesting phone. It had a lot going for it, and it ended up that there was some stuff that wasn't great about things that they're yeah. doing. But it seems like that. They may have improved in the areas where the phone failed and then pushed it into some new directions. So I think it seems like a much better version of what it is supposed to be, even if mm-hmm. they sell a brown one. <laughs> you just can't give up the brown thing, can you? I can't give it up. I don't understand some of the decisions that companies make. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I agree. I think Ultra, it's like, it's interesting to look at the Ultra because this is sort of like Samsung trying to make their best. I don't know what, like, like, like legacy flagship, like non-Foldy Boy flagship, yeah. right? I mean, it's like, yep. clearly this is still a better phone for most people than any folding phone, right? Yep. Especially when you look at the Ultra compared to a Z Flip, which is more expensive and clearly, like, inferior in pretty much every way that is relevant and sort of specs, right? Mm-hmm. Screen, performance, camera, et cetera, et cetera. But I do think them moving the price down on the Ultra frees up more room on the high end, right? For a Z Flip to live in that $1,300, $1,400 range, potentially a budget foldable of some variety, maybe creeping down a little bit closer to 1000 bucks. I- I'm just saying, I'm just saying, we didn't get our Flippy Boy yeah, update. Yeah, was nothing, right? This, not yet, not yet. But I'm going to hold out hope that because they're lowering the price here, they're freeing up more room for the Z Flip Ultra. I'm going to put my call in right now. Z Flip Ultra huh. 2021. So Z Flip, Z Flip Ultra, that's what you're thinking? I think that's what they'll do, right? So they'll make the standard Z Flip probably very similar to the one we have now, just with an upgrade sort of design. And to be fair, this is not really based on a lot of leaks or rumors. This is just my guess, right? Yeah, so yeah. who knows how, right? But I could see them making a spec 
similar S21 based kind of Z Flip, right? So, you know, give a little bit of that design language and whatnot, but still keeping it fairly similar to the Z Flip we have now. And it comes in a thousand to maybe eleven, twelve hundred, but it'll be cheaper than the current Z Flip. And then at that fourteen hundred, fifteen hundred dollar price point, it's roughly where the Z Flip is now. That's where they bring out the Ultra, which has you know the the better cameras and the hundred twenty hertz display and all the extra stuff that makes an Ultra Ultra. And that's the way they divide it because I think they've got now at least a little bit of wiggle room in their lineup, right? Where someone could look at a $1,000 Z Flip and go, oh, that's really good. But if I spend a little bit more money, I get all the extra specs of something like the S21 Ultra. I, I could be totally wrong. I could be way off. But the fact that Samsung have lowered the prices of their main flagships, to me, all I'm seeing here is the ability for the, the Z Flip line to cannibalize everything and uh everyone's gonna be really happy that's what the, I'm, that's what's gonna happen i think i'm just gonna put in the call now bold a- episode 31 of the test drivers will be how the z flip ultra is the new greatest phone in the universe episode 31 is a long way away i think it sounds about right uh, uh yeah that's uh, like 31 april time yeah yeah, right. yeah actually april i i just made up a number but yeah i'm gonna just say okay. that that's correct because i said it now and i can't walk if it back the <laughs> All right. If well, I think we need to this needs we need to put something on this. If in episode oh, no. 31 we are talking about okay. the Z Flip Ultra, okay. I don't know. I feel like I need to to like give you something here, you know? No more eating the podcast cuz no I'm right about podcast Xbox eating. Stuff? No more podcast eating. <laughs> but I had to think about that one cuz if you if you've predicted that randomly out of nowhere, it'd be kind of incredible. Uh well what you don't know is that I'm a secret Samsung spy and that I am Max Weinbeck on Twitter. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great if I had like a secret Twitter this whole time <laughs> and like I was just leaking everything know, and man. no one ever knew it was me? I don't want to talk about that because like now you've put that thought into people's minds. You don't know who's listening to this. <laughs> Uh-oh. I'm not getting invited to any more Samsung briefings yep. ever. You're done now. You're done now. This episode of The Test Drivers is brought to you by Behind the Tech with Kevin Scott, a show about tech heroes who have made our modern world possible. Every single episode features innovative people who have made their mark in their respective fields as they chat with Microsoft's Chief Technology Officer, Kevin Scott. Topics will include synthetic biology, neuroscience, space, future predictions, and so much more. And they have incredible guests like science fiction author Charles Stross, or Sam Altman, who's the CEO of OpenAI, to talk about all of this stuff. What about astronaut Dr. Mae Jemison, the first African-American woman in space? Chats with Kevin about human interstellar flight, the 100-year Starship project, and experiential education. She talks about achieving one's own level of excellence and explains why exploring an extraordinary tomorrow creates a better today. And if you listen to the show, you're going to hear a familiar voice as Real FM's host Christina Warren has joined the Behind the Tech podcast as well, which I love. Christina's fantastic. Um, that's why she, one of the reasons why she has a podcast here at Real FM of her own. She's an awesome addition to the show. Another episode that I checked out recently featured a review of the year, touching on some of the biggest topics in tech from 2020. Obviously, you could guess some of those, but the main idea is understanding exactly how technology affects everyone on the planet and what we should think about to make it better, featuring really interesting guests to dive 
deep. So go and listen to it now. Just search for Behind the Tech with Kevin Scott wherever you get your podcasts. That's Behind the Tech with Kevin Scott, or just click the link in the show notes and go check it out today. Our thanks to Behind the Tech with Kevin Scott for their support of this show and Relay FM. So CES is done. Uh, I wanted to talk about a few things that stood out. Should we talk about Intel? Yes, we should, because... Look, I think it's fair to say that 2020 was not particularly kind to our friends in blue. No. Not only did Apple fairly unceremoniously drop them and then proceed to kick them around a little bit with the M1 and their, I'm sure, many generations of excellent Apple Silicon chips to come. But they also had mad competition from AMD, right? I know that this was one of the things we talked about in our year-end wrap-up, but AMD had an unbelievably successful 2020 with the launch of Zen 2, with the launch of their Ryzen mobile chips, which were completely game-changing and so much better than I think anyone really expected with obviously, and they had all the consoles and the new GPUs. And like, I mean, AMD had a killer 2020. Intel, um, I mean, they launched 11th gen, which was, to be fair, one of the bigger generational leaps we've seen in a while. The problem is, is that that was their one of all their only generational leaps in a while, right? I mean, the laptop side has kind of been picking up, but they've had so many issues between the the transition to 10 nanometer, which is still not even happened. They're apparently going to be making their desktop chips on the five, six year old, 14 nanometer process this year when, you know, Apple's making on five nanometer. So like... Yep. they've had their fair share of, of of and it's fair to say that seven nanometer has become pretty standard at this point very standard yeah so just for a little sort of refresher here so tsmc which is probably one of the biggest foundries in the world the ones who make a lot of chips for a lot of companies but specifically for apple they're on five nanometer um amd also use tsmc but they're slightly behind because i guess they don't want to outbid apple for chips which sounds very expensive they're mostly on seven nanometer Whereas Intel have spent years and years getting to 10 nanometer, but a lot of their stuff is on 14. Now, I do want to say the the 5, 7, 10, there's a little bit of marketing speak because they're not actually like, not at any 5 nanometer isn't the same because Samsung also have brought out their own 5 nanometer process. So there's a little bit of like squishiness to those numbers, but I think it's a fairly representative idea of Intel used to be a full generation ahead And for many years, they were sort of the most well-regarded foundries in the world, and they made chips that were great on pretty much all aspects. But they've had a solid five, six, seven years now where they've had delay after issue after essentially failed process that have meant that they have not only lost their lead, but they have fallen fairly far behind, which is unfortunate for a company of Intel's size, which is unbelievably massive. And it is not... I mean, we're going to talk about some of their announcements, but it is not sure really when they're going to be able to catch up from a fabrication perspective. And I think I saw some reports that like they're starting to use TSMC for some fabbing stuff. Yeah. As well. So there are very few. So pretty much every couple years, another foundry essentially gives up, right? It is so expensive. It is so time consuming. And there's so many engineers and stuff like to build chips and to build, especially on cutting edge nodes, crazy, right? At this point, there is essentially Intel, there is TSMC, and there is Samsung creating cutting edge chips in the world, right? There are a couple other companies who are a little bit behind or working on stuff, but 
that's kind of what it's come down to at this point, right? Pretty much everyone else is sort of bowed out of the cutting edge game and kind of focus on sort of slightly cheaper and slightly easier technologies to keep up with, right? So there are not a lot of companies making this kind of stuff. And through those foundries, Intel makes all their own stuff and that's it, right? That's just what they do. But both Samsung as well as TSMC make basically everything. AMD graphics cards, AMD GPUs, uh, NVIDIA GPUs, like pretty much all Qualcomm stuff, all of the Apple stuff, like pretty much all of these companies go to either Samsung or TSMC to make all of their cutting edge chips, right? Now, Intel has always been pretty against that. We'll see how it happens. So they have a new CEO, which actually they announced sort of right after their current CEO did a bunch of like interviews and like they had this big CES thing and they're immediately like, oh, by the way, uh, see, yeah, we got a new guy coming in. But thankfully, he is an engineer and I think he hopefully will help out things a lot. But it's a precarious position because, I mean, Intel are still an absolutely massive company. PC sales are still huge, and they're still obviously very profitable. But the problem is, is that they've kind of lost their biggest competitive edge. And now it's like time is the only thing holding their lead at the moment as AMD and as Qualcomm and as especially Apple are kind of eating their lunch right now. And it's mm-hmm. that's scary. And I think that there's real potential for them to go out to a TSMC or whatever and try to outbid Apple for some of their... 7 nanometer or 5 nanometer, or at least to diversify some of their products. But it's well, uh, like just at a fundamental level, x86 architecture mm-hmm. is going out. Uh, I, I, maybe. I don't know if I would go quite that far. But the thing is so if you look at Intel versus Apple, for example, yep. the thing is, Apple have, I don't want to say a clean sheet, but they have a much cleaner sheet of paper to start from, right? The ARM architecture is simpler, but they've been able to essentially steer it from the beginning, right? I mean, I know that Apple has been sort of on the ARM, I have like a phrase for it, like the founding partners, whatever. Like they've had like a major say in it since- Since the beginning, yeah. That's why they have this like in perpetuity license that even if somebody bought ARM, Apple still gets its license baked in. There's nothing anyone can do about it. Exactly. And Apple are essentially at this point- one of the only companies actually doing real custom work on it. A lot of the other, like Qualcomm and, and Samsung and everything, they make their own SOCs, but they're essentially just kind of taking like plug and play bits from ARM. And obviously, yep. it's not as complicated. It's not as simple as that, but it, they're doing a lot of custom work on the Apple side. But when you look at what they're able to do, and you look at these like M1 Macs, which are completely game changing and so powerful, et cetera, et cetera. We've talked about this. You look at on the Intel side, they're dragging around a lot of legacy stuff, right? Not only with the x86 architecture, which is very, very old at this point, but also you think about how many sort of Band-Aids have been put on. I mean, you look at like, oh, we're looking at like 11th and 12th gen chips. That's just the last 12th gen, like since they started calling it core, right? There is a lot of code which will work all the way back to the early Windows days and MS-DOS. Like all of this stuff has been around for so long. And because that architecture is so old, it's not impossible to improve performance. It is just a lot more difficult as opposed to something like ARM where you don't have so much of that legacy baggage, right? Well, it's, it's a similar issue that Microsoft have with Windows, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it's, it's, in fact, it's kind of the same issue it's in a lot of ways. It's the same issue. They're, they're, they're locked in prison with each other. Exactly, right? And like, there's nothing wrong. Like, I don't think x86 should just disappear. So much is built on it, especially on the Windows side. It would take a very long time. Yeah. For transition because AMD and Intel are heavily invested in x86. So the only way 
for the Windows ecosystem to really significantly transition to ARM are companies like Qualcomm and these rumors that Microsoft are building their own chips. Like that's the only way it can happen. And I think we're looking at a very long timeline. It's definitely a long time frame, without a doubt. But I think that these mobile born chips mm-hmm. are so powerful and yep. so efficient mm-hmm. that I think it is the future. And yeah. it's going to take a while to get there. But I don't think Intel are in a place right now to seemingly offer the groundwork for this. Like, they just announced their Alder Lake chips, which mm-hmm. I am really intrigued about because from a basic level, they're using high efficiency and high performance cores, like a combination yep. of them, like we see in ARM chips, like we see in Apple's chips. They're saying it's going to be the future of desktop chips for them, clearly trying to counteract what is going on in the industry right now apparently set for h2 2021 on their 10 nanometer process i will say yes. right now i don't think that shipping this year i just <laughs> don't uh, i will say that once intel got their 10 nanometer up they have been on schedule um but it's certainly not been super seamless i will say intel ship a new generation every year regardless of how new that generation is um take uh skylake 6th gen, 7th gen, 8th gen, 9th gen, 10th gen, all being kind of similar based on like which device you're looking at. I, I don't think it's crazy. So essentially what they're looking at here are a mixture of high efficiency cores, like you said, which are seems like an evolution of like their old Atom cores, which they've always made. And honestly, there are a lot of these Atom cores spread all over the place. So mm-hmm. they're essentially like you would expect with high efficiency. They're not incredibly powerful, but they're much more power efficient. And you can sort of sprinkle two, four of those onto a chip without taking up a ton of die, without taking up a ton of power. And then, of course, you load up some of your bigger, beefier cores to do the heavy lifting, right? This is a very reasonable way of doing things. Obviously, on the desktop side, it's not as necessary. And AMD have already kind of said, nah, our chips, our cores are fine. We're not going to worry about that, probably because they don't have a small core that they can just yeah. sort of throw in a chip. Um, but th- this, this is reasonable. I don't think it is a silver bullet. I don't think it will oh, make no. a massive difference. And they've actually already shipped something like this. So okay. I believe it was last year they had a configuration where they had one like regular core and then they had four Atom cores all sort of combined on a chip, right? But this was, I mean, not the most powerful thing in the world. It really seemed like more of a proof of concept. It was really focused on like very, very tight packaging. So the entire chip was kind of stacked and it was, they used like different foundries to build different layers of the chip. It was it seemed like almost more of an experiment to get to this point to kind of show some kind of proof of concept, which this seems like to be more of a wide rollout of things. But there's some stuff going on at Intel, right? They have new stuff. They have the new uh, desktop chips, which are coming. They brought out new, like, quasi-gaming CPUs, which are essentially just their standard 11th gen that they've cranked up the power on. Like, they're working on things, but I don't think there's any way to reconcile the fact that Intel should have made a lot of these decisions three or four years ago if they were on the regular roadmap, but there were these valuable years that they essentially just lost due to, uh, I guess, I mean, I'm sure in time we will find out what really went wrong, but obviously... Mismanagement. I mean, it's tough. Like, I don't want to yeah. really be too harsh because, I mean, these things are incredibly difficult. Yeah. And these timelines, like, it's, it's easy to forget. Like, so, um, uh, how do I say this? A lot of companies plan years in advance. Like, so... Uh, Zen 3, right? We'll just take that for an example. Zen 3 was probably, they probably finished designing that 
several years ago. They probably started designing that like five, six years ago. Like I've talked to chip makers at some of these companies and it's funny because like they'll, they'll be like, yeah, you know, I'm, you know, you know, they're there and they give you like the presentation and whatnot. And, but I'll talk to them after. And like, I've had people say to me like, you know, it's kind of weird. I have to like kind of remind myself what this is about because this is the first time you're hearing about it, but I designed this four years ago right? Or five years ago or six years ago, whatever the case is, you know, and like, there's a point in which the designer, they do all they can, they move it on to the next team. And then they're working on Zen four or Zen five or Zen six, right? And this is the way that all these companies go. But when you look at what Intel has had issues with, they just lost so many of those years in the middle. So now this just turned into a giant rant, but I think it's going to be a difficult, but not impossible climb back for Intel, but they're in for a while, right? I mean, the stuff that they're developing right now is probably dynamite, but we're not going to see it for quite a while. So they've kind of got to dig themselves yep. out for a while to try to try to catch up in any way. It's like I agree with that, but how good is their competitors' products that they're also developing that are in five years' time when yep. they've got a head start? Exactly. You I can't just, just you know, rebuild a lead. Yeah, it just doesn't work like that, right? So uh, there are things like this. So when uh, Pat. Jelsinger, who's then new CEO, he said as an engineering background, he gave a quote, mm-hmm. which I just think is so dangerous oh. to give. <laughs> he said, we have to deliver better products to the PC ecosystem than any possible thing that a lifestyle company in Cupertino makes. Such a stupid Ooh. thing to say. Uh, this, I, I guarantee you, Austin, right now, this goes down in history with the Balmer quote about the iPhone those like the blackberry quotes about the iphone like you can't say <laughs> stuff like this you just can't do it like i don't know me it's just about apple but like you should it's just dangerous as a ceo to make comments like that disparaging comments like you won't even name apple and it's like okay my friend but they are destroying you right now and you don't know their roadmap and <laughs> i just think that it's like i wouldn't yeah. i just wouldn't I wouldn't do it. I mean, you got to rally the troops. I mean, I'm the new CEO. I'm going to come in and like, yeah, we got our asses kicked by the guys before. But but, but this time we're going to get it. Like, I get the, the rally the troops mentality. But I just yeah, think that's, there's a different way to give that quote. And uh, like, you know, it is an yeah. easy way to say, like, we should be delivering the best products available in the PC ecosystem better than anybody else. I think that's a much better quote to give, which doesn't like really put you on the line. I mean, because there are reports now of like, you know, the next wave of Apple Silicon power computers coming this year. And it seems like they may be taking another year more to finish off the transition. You know, they said it would be two Mm -hmm. years, but people weren't sure. But it seems like that they're they're doing something with the Mac Pro where it looks like they're going to have two different products potentially and you know i just look at that and it's like they kind of took everybody by surprise right with the m1 and we don't know what the next step genuinely looks like like is it Mm -hmm. going to be small gains or are we going to be looking at like similar huge gains nobody knows right apple are very good at keeping this stuff close to their chest and I just don't yeah. know if I would want to be throwing around comments like that. I, I don't know if I, if that <laughs> yeah. would be my plan. He's like, yeah, this is going to be great. We're going to match you with our uh, five-year roadmap uh, that uh, you're going to stand still for, right? Yeah. Like we did? Yeah, that, that'll, that'll work. 
While you've been listening to this podcast, how would you know if your website had gone down? This is what our friends over at Pingdom can help you with. Would you know if customers couldn't click that buy now button or access your content? You could stumble across this problem by luck, but you don't want to do with that. You want a system in place. You need something to tell you when things are running smoothly on your site, and more importantly, when they're not. This is why you need Pingdom. Pingdom detect around 400,000 outages every day. That is more than 13 million a month. Pingdom help keep your sites in the sites that you love online. It doesn't matter how big your company is, how big your website is. It doesn't matter if you're a startup or a Fortune 500 company. You need alerts about critical website issues. Pingdom will let you customize how you're alerted depending on the severity of the outage. And they'll also track and analyze your website's load time so you can see what's affecting the user experience of your visitors. If you have a site of any size, you need Pingdom. And they have a no-fuss approach to help you get started. All Pingdom needs is the URL that you want to monitor and now take care of everything else. Go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM right now for a 30-day free trial with no credit card required. Then when you sign up, use the code TESTDRIVERS at checkout to get a huge 30% off your first invoice. Our thanks to Pingdom from SolarWinds for their support of this show and RelayFM. All right, there were some other, there's some other stuff at CES. Um, we spent a bunch of time talking about Intel. Uh, what has AMD got going on? So... Nothing crazy, uh, but still some good improvements. So the big thing last year was they launched the Zen 3 core, which was a big step forward. They sort of combined some of the things. So before, a lot of the chips were kind of like two four-core CPUs kind of glued together. They've gone away with that. It's sort of now a coherent eight-core chip that they have in their laptops, and they have sort of multiple of those and some of the, the bigger desktop chips. Essentially, they've gotten huge performance gains, and really sort of the last thing that Intel really had going for them was like the single-thread gaming performance. They've essentially taken that crown away now as well. So they're bringing that over to Ryzen 5000 on the mobile side. It's not anything massively different than what we had last year. I mean, I think last year for mobile was really kind of like the eye-opening, like, oh, wait a minute, AMD's here. But what we're seeing is a lot of the fruits of their labor now. So essentially what you're getting is the only eight-core, like kind of Fenelite design unless you count a lifestyle company from Cupertino. Uh, <laughs> but you're getting that better performance. You're also getting some real high-end wins, right? So just a couple years ago, an AMD gaming laptop was like in the bargain bin. It was like mid-range at best. It just wasn't competitive in any way. Last year, we saw the beginnings of some mid-range and sort of premium gaming laptops, stuff like the Zephyrus G14 from Asus was a great example of that. But this year, they've come back, and they've come back big. I would say, and I'm just going to go off the top, so I don't actually know if this is true, but I know that it's, it's, it's got to be close. The amount of briefings I've done over the last couple weeks, I would wager, I think there are more high-end AMD laptops that I heard about that are being launched and briefed on compared to Intel, which is crazy. On like the high end, I'm not just talking like, like, like just gaming laptops on the mid range. Obviously they're all over the place, but a lot of like high end, like 2000, $3,000 gaming laptops are powered by AMD, which is not something anyone would have said 18 months ago. Yeah, because that was one of the funny things about last year, right? Is that they had these new chips and they're fantastic in laptops, but nobody had expected it. So there were no laptops. Yep. Yep, Asus were one of the few companies who kind of took a gamble on it, and it paid off spectacularly for them. Surprise, surprise, 2021, Asus had probably one of the biggest sort of AMD lineups, but pretty much everyone with maybe the exception of, I don't think Razer has anything, but most companies have at least gotten 
one or two AMD gaming laptops in their portfolio. And a lot of these are high-end, right? Because the thing is, so on the Ryzen side, they've got their H and the HX series, which are kind of like the 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 higher-end, like, 45-watt TDP kind of chips. They also have, like, HS. But essentially, they have, like, these are their higher-end gaming chips. And they've got some real performance, right? I mean, just as you would expect from what you have the advantages with Zen 3, single-threaded, they're much better. They also have improved efficiency and battery life, which is obviously something that's surprisingly also gone AMD's way, where they've gone really, really far on that, partially because they do have a very refined 7-nanometer process. But yeah, there's just a lot of good stuff for them. Now, these things are not perfect. So the only real difference between Ryzen 4000 and 5000 are the upgraded CPU designs and some of the minor optimization. The graphics are still the fairly old at this point, Vega graphics. They're slightly better because, you know, they're higher clocked, et cetera, et cetera. But the graphics actually is a little bit more of a wash uh, between AMD and Intel now. Intel sort of the last couple of generations have essentially doubled each year. So they've caught up and AMD have kind of uh, stagnated, but they haven't really focused as much effort on the graphics side. So right. that's one area where it's a little bit closer. But ultimately, the graphics on both these chips are sort of within sort of a little bit of a range, so they're fairly close. And AMD have as good, if not better, battery life in a lot of cases and more powerful CPUs. So when you see Ryzen 5000 Mobile on the box, it doesn't actually mean you're getting a brand new chip. So some SKUs are Zen 3 powered, the latest CPU core, all of these improvements. But some are Zen 2 based, essentially Ryzen 4000 with a different sticker on it. Mm-hmm. There are certainly some differences. Um, you know, the, 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 some of the clock speeds have come up, et cetera, et cetera. Prices have been sort of readjusted. But the problem here is that if you're wanting to buy a Ryzen 5000 laptop, you got to look because a 5800 might be significantly more powerful Ugh. than, say, the 5700, right? It's not even like a big tier of like, oh, the Ryzen 7s are the same. There's essentially like one or two numbers that are different, and that's it. And it's not even like the the U-1 or anything. It's just like, oh, 58, 57, 56, 55. Oh, yeah, half of those are three and half of those are two. And unless you Google it, you're not going to know. That's probably the only knock I can really give them. My brain's leaking out of my ears right now, Austin. I'm not going to lie. I, I guess. <laughs> I guess You can't it, tell that. The second digit in the model number, if it's even or odd, that tells you what kind of CPU cores. Mike, I mean, that's the simplest thing I can imagine. I'm such a noob. (laughs) So, okay, I'll give them a little ding there. They should have made it a little bit clearer to understand. Not saying that those Zen 2-based last-gen chips are are bad, but I just think that they could have made it a little bit more clear. Even Intel, when they were doing this, where they kind of mixed like some of their last-gen, their current-gen with, the 10th gen stuff, at least they had like a different kind of like model number and specifically had like a different like uh, letters on the back. So you could at a quick glance find out, but there's no way to look unless you remember that the second digit is even or odd to know. It's eh, that silly, but uh, whatever. I mean, uh, they've got upgrades in the CPU side. If you want a new gaming laptop or a new laptop of any kind, they've got some good stuff for you. Just don't get the wrong one. Very simple. Get the right one. At the time of recording, it seems like a lot of the... um mobile graphics stuff is still kind of a little bit under wraps, right? So, yes. I'm thinking about how many days it's been since I had a embargoed briefing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so there have been a few things that have been announced. So I know that they've already announced the RTX 30 series for laptops, right. uh, which again is, is similar to what we've got on the AMD side. It's what we already had on desktop last year coming down to the mobile side. So there's the 
actually they have like a specific name for it. Before they used to just call it like you know the twenty series or whatever, but now it's the RTX thirty series laptop GPUs. So they okay. have to specifically say laptop because I do think there are more differences. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. I think the launch is uh, in a week or two from when we're recording. Um, but essentially, it's all the same kind of advance- advances that you would expect from the desktop, right? So right. significantly better gaming performance, better ray tracing. They have 3060, 3070, and 3080, all of which are going into the same kind of rough form factors as before. So all of these chips have like a range of like 80 to like 150 watts based on which chip you're using and kind of like what kind of form factor it's going into. And based on that, it'll kind of give you a rough idea of the performance. But NVIDIA have talked a pretty big game about how, you know, you're not just playing at 1080p or whatever, but you're playing at like 1080p on like a 300 hertz display or 1440 or 4K even, that these laptops should be a very large gain, especially over like a two, three-year-old gaming laptop like they always like to claim. So another year, another step closer to parity with laptops and desktops. I don't think we're ever going to get there, but at least on paper. These, seems, these things seem to be pretty solid. And on back to our friends at Asus, one of the more interesting laptops that I really want to get my hands on is the ROG Flow X13. So mm. this one's interesting because even though it's AMD powered, it supports external graphics. Now, we might get into Nerdtown, but welcome to the Test Drivers podcast. Yeah. Most Intel CPUs for quite a while, and specifically laptops, have supported Thunderbolt. And Thunderbolt 3 as well as Thunderbolt 4 have pretty solid support for external graphics, right? You have that one single cable, just like you had on the old MacBooks before the M1 sort of took that capability away. You plug it in, you can have a big beefy external GPU sitting on your desk. I personally love it because I get to make lots of clickbait videos with an RTX 3090 and a little thin and light laptop or whatever. (laughs) It's great. It makes ridiculous 8K videos all, all day. But for you, you can imagine the scenario in which you have a very thin and light laptop that you carry around all day, like the Razer Blade, for example, the Razer Blade Stealth. You have that sort of battery life and form factor. You get home, you plug it in, you have all of your peripherals already ready to go with that single cable, you're charging your device, and you have significantly more graphics power in a monitor and whatever else you want to plug in. Great. The problem is, is that up until now, that has been mostly limited. Short of, I think, Alienware had something like this like a long time ago before Thunderbolt. But essentially, you were pretty much always limited to an Intel CPU. Now, that was not strictly necessary. I know there are on the desktop side some, like, one-off kind of, like, Thunderbolt things that have been integrated. But it's, it's really, it's an Intel technology for the most part, right? So as you look at all these AMD laptops coming through, they haven't had any of this kind of external GPU capability until Asus cooked up their own custom connector, which is higher bandwidth. It's much thicker, by the way. But uh, it's higher bandwidth, and it comes along with a little external GPU, now, I don't think as a recording that they have fully detailed what's going on there. Um, so I don't know the exact spec and power and all that kind of stuff. As of right now, I'm sure that will be coming fairly soon. Yep. But essentially, it's like the idea of like a smaller portable GPU that you plug in that has like its own power supply. So you just plug that one single cable in. And now you're able to get with an AMD laptop, essentially that same kind of higher level of performance And in some ways, it could be even better than what you could get over Thunderbolt because it has more bandwidth and it has a couple of other features that supposedly will help performance. But again, it's kind of vague, so I'll believe it when I see it. But just from like a a conceptual level, it's an external GPU that they have created for their own laptop line to allow you to have... I mean, you might be having like a 30 series laptop 
uh, GPU in the machine, but to be able to really get full on desktop performance, you can just plug this cable in, and then your exactly lovely little laptop can play whatever game you want at full full power. Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, the selection will be more limited because there are a lot of Thunderbolt GPUs out there. There are a lot of enclosures that you can just buy your own graphics card and drop it in. And you know that's going to work across a fairly wide variety of devices. This seems like it is, right now, one GPU that works with one Asus laptop. So we'll see how this sort of catches on. But, you know, Asus, they're always coming up with wacky, crazy ideas. And this one actually does make sense because this is one of the first ROG kind of like Thin and light, you know, I think it's actually even a two-in-one. Like, it seems like a really cool laptop. And the fact that you have that capability and the AMD CPU, it, it's cool. We'll have mm-hmm. to wait and see. I think it's still a little vague right now on some of the details. But it looks very cool. But, Mike, I'll tell you one of the things that if we take a hard left turn out of nerd town into creative town, I want to check out the new LG Ultrafine OLED. Yeah. Uh, so... I actually, I, have you ever used one of the Ultrafines? Yes, I have the Ultrafine Ergo one. I have that. I like it. Oh, nice. It's a nice monitor. I, I like I'm it. a big fan. I'm a big fan of the Ultra uh, Ultrafines. Now, mind you, I will give a little disclaimer. Um, when they first brought out the Ultrafine, like in 2015 or whatever, I was part of their like ad campaign, mm-hmm. um, which actually was a really fun video. Uh, but uh, that being said, I've been using my original like 2015 or 2016 Ultrafine ever since then, right? It's been right. on my desk for like four years now. Never had a problem with it. Plugged in a million devices, 5K high resolution, and specifically really high brightness, all that kind of stuff. Like, I really like the Ultrafine displays. But now they've brought out a new OLED Pro. This is a 31.5 inch 4K display. It's obviously 4K, so it's not as high resolution as the 5K. But the real claim to fame is that it is a full OLED panel. That I am very excited to try. We've seen some OLED laptops. Yeah, We haven't really seen any OLED displays. And while, yes, there are things like mini LED coming, you have like the Pro Display XDR on like the very high end. And we don't have a price on this, so I mean, it could be very expensive. I assume it's going to be... That's, that's bad, right? No price? <laughs> well, no price or release date. So it's still early. It's a CES thing. It's not crazy yeah, i mean this no thing will certainly bad. be more expensive uh, yeah <laughs> yeah okay it's, it's probably <laughs> expensive it's going to be expensive but that being said having an oled especially one that's that large yeah okay i don't have any problem with that is going to be really nice right because as much as i love the ultrafine it still doesn't have like the pure blacks of an oled it doesn't have the same contrast and while it is bright i'm curious to see how far they push it because again this is an early unit they didn't actually have any obviously available to to test or to try or whatever they just have like some videos um but it's cool it has like 90 watts power delivery over us USB C. Mm-hmm. it looks cool especially for video editing i will say i'm excited to try it um whenever that actually comes out talking about og as well and displays i'm sure you saw it it was one of the more interesting <laughs> looking concepts well they yes. say it's not really a concept, it's an actual product. The LG Rollable phone. This comes from the same division uh, at LG that created the Wing. It's their Explorer mm-hmm. project, where they're basically just trying to make weird and wonderful um, bets, I think, to, to have either technology to sell to other companies or the hopes that they'll be able to create some product that will really catch on. Uh, I, I guess this is... it's in. It shares the ethos of a 
foldable phone in that it's changed the physical size of the display. Yeah. I mean, there's no way that this thing is going to be made of durable material, right? Like, come on. Like, it, there's no way, so, right? Okay, so if we think about foldable phones, we've had a couple of generations at this point to to take a look at. So you look at something like the Z Flip or the Z Fold. It's like a, a clamshell style device, whether it's sort of large or small, it doesn't matter. Like the screen is on the inside. So when it's in your pocket, it is protected, right? Which is while, yes, the screens are less durable, they're also way more protected because the only time the screens ever exposed to anything is when they're open, right? Mm-hmm. So there's there's that kind of style of thinking. Then there have been some devices like, for example, the Huawei that actually was one of the first foldable phones. It had the outer fold, right? So you opened it up on the outside yeah. and it made a larger display, but the it was, Mate you know, X. entirely exposed. I believe yes. that was. That was interesting, but the problem was is that with a less durable display and it's on the outside and it's all around, you don't have to worry about scratching up just the front of your display. You have to worry about scratching up any part of your phone, which is, of course, much softer than standard glass, mm-hmm. right? So uh, downside. The rollable, I mean, to be fair, we have like a GIF, right? Like that's all I've really seen on this thing right now. So we don't know. I have some reservations. First of all, it is certainly going to be thick, right? There's no way that any foldable phone can't be. And the fact that it's rollable, I mean, that screen's just got to go somewhere. So that's one side of it. The other side of it is while I like the concept of a rollable to sort of shrink the size of the device, I don't have a good sense for how big the device is. So there's a lot of like, staring at this gif over and over and trying to like squint it like eh, is it thinner on that side uh, this that uh, but yeah i i agree i think that there's certainly going to be an aspect of no matter what kind of display technology they're using it's not going to be gorilla glass victus right it's you're going to have to be a little bit more concerned with scratching i think my main thing is when you have it rolled down is that that front part of the display at least durable enough to live in your pocket that would be my big question i don't think so i i don't know how it could be I mean, having, well, if you think, so if you look at the bottom half of the display, that doesn't roll. If there's some way to make that a little bit more durable than maybe like the bendy bit, but then I don't know how you blend two kinds of glass. Uh, That sounds complicated for a display. Yeah, because then like you would run your finger over it and like, oh, here's this little ridge. And then like, what, are you going to cut yourself on the exposed piece of glass (laughs) on the end? Now, my expectation is like, this is that plastic or thin glass that's on mm. you know at best almost on samsung's phones but it's the entire yeah. thing and that means you have a phone which is really fragile from yeah uh being marked from you know like it's it's going to be soft the screen's going to be soft and i applaud the innovation but this Unless LG are sitting on something that we don't know about from a durability perspective, which I don't believe that they would be, because that would have made it into this press release, <laughs> uh, I think this is just going to be a cool concept that we're really going to love to play with, but there's going to be significant issues at using something like this uh, on a daily basis. It's really cool. There's like, you know, I think TCL. We're also showing off a bunch of flexible displays, mm-hmm. and it's clearly something that people want to make. Yeah. You know, so you know, like like all of these types of concepts, like eventually someone's going to work it out if it's possible to make this stuff durable. Like I believe in that, but mm-hmm. we're in that rocky period of time, and you know, I remember when the the Huawei phone, like the Mate X and the Galaxy Fold, were showing off at the same time, basically, and 
everyone was like, oh, the Huawei is clearly the one to go with because you can get uh, the, you know, the, the full screen on the front and stuff. And I was looking at it and I knew at the time that it wasn't going to work because you can't put the screen on the outside. And that's yeah. kind of what LG have done here. The screen is on the outside. There's nothing to protect it. <sighs> I, I, I don't want to judge too harshly before we try these things, but I will agree there are a lot of red flags at the moment, I do think this will not be the only rollable phone we see this year. No. My main concerns would be the durability. I also do worry a little bit about the size, though, because you think like a foldable phone is thick, but at least it's thin when you open it up and when you're using it, right? Which I think goes a yeah. lot of the way toward making it feel more reasonable. But a rollable phone is going to be the same thickness always, right? It's just going to be the matter of kind of that top area or the side area, whatever you want to call it, extending out. So, uh, yeah, I mean, if they make a small rollable phone, that means that I have a reasonable size phone in my pocket that turns into a big phone when I need it, sweet. If it's just a, I have a medium-sized phone that goes to being a really big-sized phone, I don't know how interested It'll I'm going to be. Gonna thick be. Too. It'll be thick, yeah. which will make the yeah. overall size of it feel even more uncomfortable to use. But it's the first one of these, right? Like... I, I, you know, and so I, I understand that there could be something in it, but knowing what we know about the technology so far, I, I think that this will be a really nice concept, kind of like the LG mm -hmm. Wing. Right? Like, I think it will be yeah. similar, which is like, this is cool, but it's not going to be a phone that I use every day. I mean, the LG Wing may be a more usable phone on a daily basis than this one because the fundamentals of it are there, right? Like it's not mm -hmm. inherently um, prone to, to damage unless you, I don't know, yeah. you knock the side of it in. But I pause with motorized components. Mm, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, too, yeah, of course. Which this rollable phone would have. M motors in phones, they they do some cool stuff like the pop-up cameras or whatever. Um, but I'm not sure about that. As a as a thing for the future, I think physical uh, movement from the user is is ultimately more reliable in the long term. I think than having motors. Yeah, we'll see. I don't. There are a lot of like small concerns I have that could very easily turn into very large concerns if it's not really well executed. But look, it's CES time, right? We got to keep an open mind. We yeah. got to be excited to try out the tech when we were finally able to get our hands on it. And we got to applaud anyone who's trying something new, even if it might suck and it might not yes. be there. At least we're moving forward, right? I mean, the yep. first Fold wasn't a great phone. I mean, it was okay. It was decent, but it wasn't great, right? But Gen 2 was solid, right? So yeah. I, I want to see, I've never used a rollable phone of any variety yet. I agree. I think my priors are that it's going to be cool, but not there yet. But who knows? Maybe it'll be amazing and we'll rebrand from the Z Flip gang to the Rolly Rollastic. The Rolly the Rolly Roll Boys. <laughs> that, mm, <laughs> that one might need a little bit more workshopping. Uh, go back to the drawing board on that one. <laughs>